Hello. My name's Chris Bland. And my name's Kelly Harlock. And you're listening to That Classical Podcast. And um, things are, things are changing here at That Classical Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the new intro. My favourite part is the farty tuba at the end. So please do feel free to share your comments about that. But we should probably start with a bit of an announcement, Chris. I'm going to hand over to you. Absolutely. So as you may have noticed by the episode title, changes afoot at That Classical Podcast. And the big news is that after three super happy years with the podcast, I'm moving on to Pastures New. Um, So excited about the next stage of the podcast, though. We have got an absolutely stupendous new co-host lined up for you. So without much further ado, please welcome to the podcast, Sasha Kelly. Yes. Confusingly named. (laughs) (laughs) The Double Kelly Act is coming to you. what we are. Sorry. Um, Yeah, I'm Sasha Kelly and I'm so excited. Thank you so much, Chris. That was really weird hearing about yourself um, being talked about in the third person. But I've been a listener and a fan um, of the podcast for years. So I am nerding out a little bit, getting to like sit here with both of you. Although You're I welcome. did work with Kelly, so it would be strange <laughs> if I had fangirl moments right that now. That is true. Um, but, uh, yeah. um, it but it's is... a real life celebrity interaction. Exactly. Yeah. I'm like yeah, here sure. when I'm here at that classical podcast HQ, yes. experiencing it firsthand. But I'm absolutely thrilled to be part of the team and I'm so honoured that I'm Mate, being welcomed. We're thrilled to have you. Absolutely. I'm thrilled to work with you Sasha and I yeah we go way back we struggled struggled through radio life together so no it's gonna be great but obviously Chris I'm very very sad to see you go and I'm I'll very miss sad you to be going. and Sasha you're gonna have to learn how to beatbox <laughs> oh my <laughs> it's goodness it's gonna be great um but Chris why don't you start by telling us what this episode's all about today sure so the very first episode of that classical podcast was me and Kelly just sharing our fave pieces of classical music and what got us into mm-hmm. the genre as a whole so we thought Hey, why bother with a new idea? Let's do that again. Recycling. Done right. So, Sasha, why don't you start us off? What was your fave piece in the world? What got you into classical music? Oh my gosh. So, I don't know about you two, but I was very nerdy in high school. I mean, hard to believe. Glamour's on that sitting in front of you. But yeah, I was like not the coolest person. Probably because I played the euphonium, which is, you know. Tell us what a euphonium is. Yeah. So, um, the euphonium is, if you don't know, what that is it's okay my parents didn't know I think still a lot of people close to me have no idea um even though there was one sitting in my room for a really long time yeah and I have a very expensive degree that I'm still paying off worthwhile um that gives me the license to play it in public um but basically it's a small tuba so it's like maybe the length of your arm as opposed to a tuba which is probably like half the size of a woman it's massive which is yeah me. yeah depends, <laughs> depends on the length of your arm or the size yeah, of the yeah, woman exactly really. i'm as i was saying that i held out my arm and i'm like no one can see this yes. this is not relevant in any way but um yeah it's a small tuba and basically it just meant that no one dated me in high school <laughs> okay <laughs> i'm sorry or, or university um no. i'm right there with you babe don't worry don't worry but um yeah I, so my piece today that i've chosen is a tchaikovsky's sixth symphony because while everyone else was listening to emo music and like putting on dark eyeliner and dressing in black i was like tchaikovsky's where it's at he had all the feelings he's my boyfriend i'm really sad <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he gets me yeah so um yeah so i just 
just thought like for me it's always like that piece that if I had to go to a desert island there's other music that I've like discovered and loved since but you know he was there for me when I was 13 yeah. and thought the world was gonna end yes um spoiler alert it didn't and okay. also it was a great piece of music so here we go um basically it was written 1893. Got it. He took like a couple months to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's subtitled The Pathétique, which obviously we think of as pathetic. <laughs> but oh, that's sh- not really what it means. It doesn't actually really translate. And if anything, it kind of more means passionate, which again Ooh. goes back to the, like the whole emo vibe. Yeah, yeah I was going to say this. Bringing. You pretending, oh, no, I didn't listen to emo music at all. Like Tchaikovsky is emo yeah, music. Yeah, exactly. he's the Avril Lavigne oh, of the 1800s. I was like, was it 30 Seconds to Mars or like the guys with the spiky hair Uh like Panic at the Disco oh that that, was a great time Tchaikovsky definitely would have been in his black sequins and his like white face makeup tight black jeans yeah Yeah. that's his vibe that's Mm. what's going on right but interestingly that's not what this piece was all about Mm. Tchaikovsky wrote to his nephew Bob <laughs> Very good name Great Russian for a name. Russian. Strong, yes. Um, to say this is the best thing I've ever written. I'm so excited. I pretty much put my wow. soul on a piece of paper, there and is. the world's gonna hear it. Yeah. So get ready. But then, you know, I'll give you a few little pointers, and then I think we should listen to the fourth movement Great. because that's the one that is like really where all the emotions at, like the peak of the mountain. Nice. Um, But basically it was kind of revolutionary, like in form. It did some things that people didn't quite expect. Nice. But also Tchaikovsky died like two weeks after it was premiered. (gasps) Yeah. So let's listen to it and then I'll give you some more facts after. Hearing that, even like, I'm really pleased that Tchaikovsky was pleased with it, but you can <laughs> tell that there's some serious sadness in that man just by the way it sounds, the chords, like the powerful, the powerful sadness of it. Um, <laughs> no, no one who's happy yeah. writes that much string music with that much vibrato. It's very true. Well, exactly. I was going to say, like, that's the fourth movement. So traditionally, and this is kind of what I was talking about, like, it, it, blew people's minds they're like they didn't blow people's minds in a happy way and it wasn't like a Stravinsky like what the hell are you doing people were like oh Tchaikovsky like not sure if that's a (laughs) great thing that you've done oh so it didn't go down well no so Tchaikovsky wrote in his diary after all he's like yay this great piece of music I've written I'm so excited nothing has been truer he then wrote in his diary that he went to like the after party and no one would talk to him about the piece (laughs) and everyone kept avoiding it in topical conversation and he kind of went I mean you know, it doesn't take a genius to work out that that's like the clearest cue ever. That yeah. people were like, not upset, but like maybe underwhelmed. <laughs> underwhelmed. Can you imagine mm. being underwhelmed by that? Thing? I know. And so that's why I love it because this fourth movement, so traditionally fourth movements, you know, they're like, yeah, it's the end. Right. Like we're getting it. And okay. this one basically like 
fades away okay. into nothing at the right. end. And when you're listening to it, it's like all these like string players just like gradually descending mm-hmm. and then going up again and then going down. And that's sure, basically sure. a good five minutes of the opening. It's just like, yeah, in musical form. Yeah, so um, that's kind of like an untraditional thing as well. Yeah. So Tchaikovsky also wrote that it had a secret program. So Ooh. it was actually uh, about something, but then, you know, like all good mysteries, was like, and I've only told one person <laughs> and no one will ever know. And that person was his nephew, Bob. Bob <laughs> makes yes, a comeback. Bob, come back, again. Bob. So um, Tchaikovsky is a bit of a controversial figure because uh, it's well known that he was gay. But also, the person that he was in love with was his nephew, his sister's son, Bob. No! So they never actually, like, consummated their love, but it's pretty well documented through the letters that Tchaikovsky was fairly infatuated with. I didn't know it was Bob. It was Bob. Bob. I mean... Bob isn't really a name that I think about writing love sonnets to. <laughs> no, he's you know he's not going to be the like steamy hot stable boy in a romance novel, is he? Um, yeah, no. Or is he? I don't know. <laughs> Bob. Um, anyway, I'm getting sidetracked, but basically right. Tchaikovsky um, left everything. Like Bob was his. <laughs> I'm laughing at the name now, but he was his sole heir, so he left everything sure. to him. Uh, and then, so the piece was premiered, and then two weeks later, Tchaikovsky died. <sighs> and so there's been a lot of stuff written about the fact that people think he drank um, on unboiled water and gave himself cholera oh, and yeah. committed suicide. Yeah. There'd been other instances of Tchaikovsky had, like, walked into a lake to give himself, like, sure. pneumonia yeah. oh, um, to get sick. Yeah. But Kind of, there's not enough um, evidence about it. And I'm of the mm. opinion that it's probably a time in history when if you got super sick, there was a high likelihood of die. you dying. Yeah. Also, um, super high likelihood of just getting sick all yeah, the time. Exactly. <laughs> so it wasn't really a time when, you know, medical like intervention was going to do a lot. Yeah. So yeah. he was about 53. And then, you know, like all great pieces, everyone was like, oh, my God, Tchaikovsky's dead. Like, we have to put on all these memorial concerts. And, like, within a week, everyone's like, let's get this piece back on. And everyone went, oh, my gosh, he knew he was going to die. And so that kind of perpetuated this whole it's a suicide letter. This piece of music is, like, him saying that he knew he was going to die. Right. But, yeah. That we'll take that with a grain of salt because he maybe just drank <laughs> yeah. some day. But when, you're, <laughs> yeah. but when you're 14 and you're like super emotional, <laughs> and that guy Nick in music class like won't write back to your Nick, text messages, please. you're like, I know how Tchaikovsky feels. This is all my feelings. So that's why I identify with this piece. Of course, I didn't like jump in a river and get pneumonia. Thank God, yeah. And also, I lived in like 2000 and something, yeah. so. I just took flu tablets, but, you know, it's kind of what was going on. And that's why I love this piece. Das klassische Podcast. Next, it's Ravel. Um, He's my guy. I thought because... I actually do. Because in our first ever episode, uh, I actually chose a Ravel piece then as well. Mm. I chose um, Miroir. Uh, which Ravel wrote for piano. It's a little suite of, of lovely little pieces. So for a quick recap... 
Maurice Ravel was around at the turn of the 20th century, early 1900s, really cool guy, loved writing for the piano, loved orchestrating stuff for other people, uh, loved making clockwork toys from scratch. (laughs) We won't won't go into that. Uh, But in November 1914, in light of the First World War breaking out, he was like, lads... I'm going to write an a cappella choral piece. Mm. And a cappella obviously meaning just no backing track, no mm-hmm. accompaniment whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And except for this piece, Ravel wrote almost exclusively instrumental stuff. So it's really special. I didn't um, realise that he really wrote any vocal choral music. stuff. No, yeah. he really, really didn't. So yeah. I think this was, yeah, well, you'll find out. I'll find you'll out. Find sure. out. Um, so here's the thing you've got to know about Ravel. He really wanted to fight in world war one like a lot alarmingly enthusiastic about it um probably because he felt a bit pressured because all because his brother and all his like artistic artist musician mates were already out on the front line okay but nobody would let him go so he tried three times to volunteer for military service the first time he was rejected for being underweight Two kilos oh, underweight. Oh no. And he wrote to his friends, this is great. I am two kilos too light to get mixed up in this magnificent fight. I have only one hope that I pass the next examination and they succumb to the charm of my anatomy. Oh my god. <laughs> All I can Which think is, really is just like gains, gains, gains. <laughs> yeah. like, get a protein, protein shake. <laughs> you need some protein shake. Maurice drink. got on the protein. Oh, Good. Um, also, well, all I can think of is, um, you know, Scrappy Doo when he's like, let me at him. Let me <laughs> Genuinely, him. Ravel is. is a tiny, small dog. <laughs> um, so he kept trying and trying. This is one of my favourite anecdotes as well. One time he went to the French cabinet minister and was like, I've got it. I'm underweight. So you can put me on a plane in the Air Force because famously pilots, the jockeys of the sky. Um, so, but then ultimately in March 1916, he was finally admitted into the army as a driver for military com- uh, convoys far away from the front line. So okay, probably right. in like the back streets of Paris. Sure. Something Just like, like that. You know, carting things around in his <laughs> Just, truck. You know, exactly, yeah. But he was part of it. He was part of it. So that's the context in which he wrote uh, his trois chansons, his three songs that really show his desire to take part in the war effort because composition was his only way of participating when he was getting all these rejections and not eating enough cake. Let me do a war. Yeah, exactly. War. And that's the lyrics. <laughs> no, um... But so we might have spoken a little bit about chanson, but Ravel specifically based these ones on 16th century French chanson. So like Renaissance chanson. And I guess to summarise what they were, they were really heavily influenced by Italian madrigals, which we have definitely spoken Mm, about before, Mm -hmm. which are just really poetic, tuneful, quite simple, kind of talk about nature, just nice songs, basically. basically. Yeah, just nice songs. And Ravel wrote his own poetry for these, and they are, as you might be able to guess, really about loss. Nicolette is the first one. It's about this girl. This is a bit weird. It's (laughs) about this girl who goes for a walk in the fields. She's picking daisies. She's picking daffodils. Sure. And then she meets a wolf, and the wolf's like come here. And she says, no, thanks. <laughs> she meets a hot guy and he's like, come here. She says, no, thanks. What? And then she meets an ugly, stinking old man. And he's like, come here and have this money. And she says, yes. And that's the end of oh, the that's song. The end. Oh, that's the end. Oh, that's the end of 
There's sorry. no wolves and hot men That's should a real, be treated alike. A but real ugly old men, <laughs> go with for money. it. With money. Uh, great stuff, River. Um, the last one's called Ronde, uh, and it's a whole song about how this older generation are warning everyone, men, women, children, not to go into this kind of haunted forest. Interesting. Sure. But today we're talking about the difficult middle child. Uh, it's called Trois Beaux Oiseaux du Paradis. So three beautiful birds of paradise, right? The three birds are different colours, symbolising the three colours of the French flag. Oh, See what so you did there, I'm seeing the war connection now. I yeah. was like, none of this is related. <laughs> I don't understand how people would hear this and go, oh yeah, well, yes, patriotic duty. Um, but basically, the kind of, the gist of this is that each... These three birds. Each bird brings the narrator a gift and then kind of flies off into the distance. Sure. The first gift is a glance. Right. <laughs> the, second, a gift. the second gift is a kiss. And the last gift is like a red, bleeding, beating heart, which slowly grows cold. Now, Hi, Granny. Uh, Happy Christmas. Um, well, I got you a glance. Um, my brother got you a kiss. <laughs> yeah. What? What did uh, what did little Timmy get you there? Did oh, it's a, a it's beating human bloody heart. human yeah. heart. Cool, yeah. Next year, just Quality Street will do. <laughs> um, but I basically I discovered this song just a few weeks ago when I was doing some research into Ravel, and I thought it was really special. So um, let's give it a listen. If you'd asked me who'd composed that, my first guess would not have been Ravel. Do you know what I mean? That doesn't sound like Ravel at all. That's mad. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's so beautiful. Is yeah, it? It's great. Yeah. It's stunning. And it sounds so modern to me, like the crunchiness of it. And um, But you can, I mean, you can hear in the words there that it really is about the war. Like he even says, your love has gone to the war. My love has gone to the war. Your love has gone to the war like three times throughout. So my song, Gonna Do a War, <laughs> yeah. it's a big <laughs> war time. It's a war time now. Um, but obviously, you know, if you didn't know what the words were, you probably wouldn't be able to guess it was about this kind of struggle of hmm. being desperate to kill some dudes. Um, <laughs> get involved. And yes, you can. get involved. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like it's a really underappreciated part of his repertoire. Like oh, I'd never, yeah. I'd never mm. heard it before like <laughs> no, three yeah. weeks ago. Do you know why he didn't like, go oh I'm pretty good at this like maybe I should write well, some more music for voices because it kind of like stopped after that right right and like I said he he kind of always focused on um just orchestral music and or orchestrating things for other composers mm. who couldn't do it like Mazorgsky he orchestrated a bunch of his stuff yeah. and um and then he wrote that little non-piece called Bolero. Yeah. Kind of sticks <laughs> in everyone's hated. brain yeah yeah forever um but no I just thought you know what I'm gonna say it Ravel is probably my favourite composer of all time. <gasps> Stop oh presses. my god! Wow. Um, and I'm just—it goes to show, like I have 
uh, I've loved classical music since I was small and I've grown up listening to it, but I didn't even hear this piece till a few weeks ago. And there there's always stuff to discover. So uh, go off and explore. So talking of going back to old faves, I thought I'd go back to the man who is one of my favourite composers of all time, and that is Rafe Vaughan Williams. Oh, B-dubs. Uh, who I actually also talked about in the first episode of the podcast. Oh, as well. God, we're going back. It's time. like I was there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the piece I'm going to talk about is actually one that doesn't get that much time in the spotlight. So it's his third symphony, which he called the Pastoral Symphony. Mm. Now, this actually was a bit of a, a misnomer, and I think it's actually contributed to people sort of writing this one off. And so, in fact, he wrote a letter to his future wife uh, about 18 years after the piece had premiered, saying that it's not really Lamkin's frisking at all, as most people take for granted. What? So- <laughs> Translation? So there's often this like stereotype of Vaughan Williams' music, especially calling it pastoral. It's yeah. like, you know, Cowpats, Fields, England. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, was that Cowpat? Yeah. Yeah, that was my Cowpat impression. <laughs> right. But what he's saying, it's not like frolicking around a plush yeah. field at all. Got it. What this actually is, is reflection on war, basically. So this was completed in 1921, shortly after old Rafey Boy had come back from World War One. So this is like the other end of the scale from Ravel. Ooh. Exactly, yeah. So uh, Vaughan Williams was uh, slightly older during the First World War. He was in his early 40s, I think. Mm. And so a lot's made of how the war affected him, but he never really spoke about it publicly that much. So you sort of have to dive into his music to get a sense of that. So this symphony, which on the surface is really peaceful, really smooth, really pastoral, you know, the tempi are all quite slow. Mm -hmm. It's lots of it's sort of lush orchestration. Mm -hmm. But then once you scratch the surface a bit, you actually see this really sort of, this real sort of undercurrent of violence and dissonance that often Mm -hmm. is in lots of his work, but that is smoothed over by, you know, the Vaughan Williams that you know, like, oh, folk tunes and England. Got it. And pretty melody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cowpats. So, and indeed cowpats. So the bit that we're going to listen to now is the start of the second movement of this symphony. And what you're going to hear is a solo horn over some accompaniment. So the tune that the horn is playing is in F major, but the accompaniment is in F minor. So at first... Yeah, very tasty. (laughs) At first listening, those two keys don't actually seem that far away from each other. Mm. But, you know, once you get into the whole sort of harmonic structure of it, you know, F major... Every major key has a relative minor. For F major, that's D minor, which, if you then go around the circle of this, is actually very far away from F minor. Mm. So, in fact, harmonically speaking, what the solo horn is doing in comparison to the accompanying instruments is really, really far away. So it sounds like it's one thing, but actually is there's this real sort of uh, dissonance and sort of tension. So let's have a listen.
what a lovely horn. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I I love mm. that. I think um, that's gorgeous. It's 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 unsettling. Yeah, isn't it? Mm. But yeah. but beautiful. I thought I think that's the- when yeah. you were describing it before we went into it, I was thinking, well, that's a brave choice. You know, yeah. it's like when you get two different prints and you wear them together. Right, and you're like, I'm gonna look amazing. <laughs> Spots and, and it doesn't quite work. But I think that actually does work. I Me mean, too. it shows that Vaughan Williams kind of knew what he was doing, right? Yeah, yeah it's definitely sort of very purposeful um and it's actually just one of like a handful of things that he does throughout the whole piece to make you be like this is normal but also i'm unsettled it's weird yeah uh, so in later on in that same movement there's a, a solo trumpet cadenza so cadenza is just free free playing basically mm. but that's notated out and he was inspired to write this when he overheard a bugler practicing and a bugle is just a trumpet effectively that's mm-hmm. used in military music right and he heard this bugler practicing and they slightly biffed it, basically. The piece they were playing, they wanted to do uh, an octave jump, but they split the note and ended up doing a jump of a seventh. So a slightly more oh. sort of... Mm-hmm. Just a bit one. funky. Dirty. A little, a little bit funky. <laughs> and so he was inspired by that to write this sort of military fanfare type cadenza, mm. but that is based around a seventh rather than an octave. So it's sort of... It sounds like everything's proper, but again, it's sort of slightly mm. off. And another way he even goes further with that is that he instructs the trumpet player playing the cadenza to do it without using valves. So as I'm sure you know very well, our resident mm. new brass player here, Sasha, <laughs> valves basically help brass players play in different keys. So the way you have to play this solo with a trumpet means that it's very slightly out of tune oh with the modern tuning of an orchestra. Okay. I won't go into all and the boring... And dare I say it, like, quite tricky. Yeah. Really <laughs> tricky, to be yeah. Dare I say it. <laughs> oh my gosh, stop the presses <laughs> again. Um, but yeah, that would be, like, put a fair amount of pressure on someone because you're, like, <laughs> yeah. trying to make a mistake on, on purpose. purpose. Yeah, so... Like, fighting against your, like piece of equipment in your hands at the same time amazing so everything that a fanfare is supposed to be sort of really pure tone bright piercing makes you feel powerful and strong Mm. he sort of undermines that whole thing by making the trumpet sort of slightly out of tune and slightly not doing what it's supposed to be doing and yeah so it's just something I find really interesting about this piece that it's sort of again that sort of tension between what things ought to be or what they should sound like and sort of pulling it around it's great i love it so did people like it when they heard it were they like on board with this whole like minor major weird trumpet (laughs) moment did they realize weirdly people didn't actually realize it's the it's whole calling it the pastoral symphony so that people heard so those are the parts of it that sound more sort of noticeably off if you want to call Mm. it that the rest of it you know is more sort of typical vaughan williams uh and so lots of audiences thought it was like he said lambkins frisking around yeah yeah um so yes in that letter that he wrote in 1939 that's a good 20 odd years after he wrote the piece and people still weren't quite getting it and Mm. so yeah no people definitely have taken this piece at face value too often and that's why i wanted to talk about it because it's very (laughs) clever okay he's a very clever man that classical podcast so thank you for listening to this kind of secondary 
kickoff episode of that <laughs> classical podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it. Um, thank you to Sasha uh, for for joining me on this uh, crusade of classical music this podcasting. This pilgrimage, <laughs> yes. if you may, to classical music. Exactly. Um, thank you to Chris for three amazing years. Uh, and thank you to all our listeners who asked how we were doing over our hiatus and, and checked in with us. We really appreciate your support and um, really looking forward to making more episodes in the future. But just before we go, Chris, anything anything you want to add? <laughs> Any last words? Yeah. Um, yeah, guys, thank you so much for listening to the podcast over the past few years. Uh, I'm really excited about the future of the podcast now. You know, it's one of those things uh, I don't have enough time to commit to it properly anymore, mm. which is why I'm so excited to see uh, what Sasha and Kelly do with it and how they take it forward. Don't screw it up, guys. Oh, my God. Sorry. <laughs> <Fresh pressure. laughs> um, yeah, I've loved that classical podcast so much making it and i can't wait to carry on as a fan of the show so sasha if they want to know more about that classical podcast where can they find that out i was gonna say chris um you might want to get your phone out and follow some accounts that i'm gonna tell you about if you're an instagram fiend like me we're at at that classical insta on twitter it's at that classical we've got a spotify playlist Mm. where we're gonna add everything that we talked about today Mm -hmm. that classical podcast.com and I'm going to see you next time, Kelly. Yes, you are, Sasha. Um, Thank you so much, guys. See you next time. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye.